All right. I have been preaching for the past couple weeks on desire, and I've been talking about our desire for God or our desire for the things of God and um, how that it is the key to receiving all that the Lord has for us, both in our personal life and probably more importantly in terms of ministry. What God wants us to do for Him is largely dependent upon us maintaining a fervent, focused desire for the things of God. David said, one thing have I desired, that also will I seek that I might dwell. I will seek after what I desire. What did Jesus say? He said, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you'll have them. We think the technology of believing is what causes us to receive from God, but that's not the case. It's a lack of desire or an abundance of desire that causes us to not receive or to receive. What things you desire when you pray. But I want to pivot a little bit this morning and I want to share about God's desire. He did not just create us as beings, spirit beings, with a desire at our core, but that He is not a God of desire because He absolutely is. God is a God of an eternal depth of desire. Of the, if you had to pick a handful of qualities that describe God, most people would not, if I limited you to four or five, desire would not be one of them. You would probably say love and faith and righteousness and all these religious things that are all true, all good. Um, but I would say that in that top five list that characterize our God, desire would be one of them. God is a God of desire. Our text we've been using out of Hebrews chapter 11 kind of goes through the hallmark of the heroes of faith of the Old Testament. It talks about the lives they lived, the great deeds they performed, how that they were men and women of faith, but they, they died stretched out on their faces, reaching for fulfillment that they did not get because Jesus had not yet come. But when he did come, of course, glory to God, during those three days between the cross and the throne, he emptied Abraham's bosom of all those that died in faith, believing for the promise. So they did receive it, they just didn't receive it in this lifetime. However, for us, God's provided something better. But listen to what he said about those who died in faith. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those that say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, had they been mindful of that country that they left, that they came out from, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. Catch that phrase, they desired a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has, here's the next phrase, he has prepared a city for them. So God has prepared a better life for you and I. But desire is what's going to get you there. Just because God has built that city, just because God has made that location, just because God wants you to have it, alone is not going to get you there. His desire for you must be met 
by your desire for him and for what he has. And specifically, he says, they desired a better country, therefore I'm proud of them. And I call them my people, and I have provided them a better place, a better city, a better life. All right, so on the other end this morning, I want to talk about God's desire. On the other end of your desire for God is a God who's desiring you. And I think we sometimes lose sight of that. When we think of God's desire, we often think about what does God require of me? What's he want out of me? What does he expect me to stop doing? What does he want me to start doing? We always think in terms of function and responsibility and how am I going to respond to God? And of course, none of those things are bad or wrong because when, um, when it comes to walking this out, we naturally do think about what are the things that God is wanting me to do. But first and foremost, above all, when we set our desire on God, the first focus has got to be there's a God on the other end of my aim who wants me. I want him because he wants me. John said, we love him because he first loved us. God's desire has filled the heavens, has come down to the earth in Jesus Christ, and is in the world today calling to men and women. So on the other end of your desire for God, there's a God who desires you. And when you reach out to him, he is reaching back to you. I know that people think sometimes, you know, I, I've prayed, I've reached out to God, but it's as though the heavens are brass. It's like my prayers are empty. You may very well be experiencing opposition, but just know that above those shadow, shadowy clouds, uh, as they say, the sun's shining, God is reaching out for you. He's never not reaching back to you. Praise the Lord. Listen, if you can imagine God as your father, as your daddy, who loves you dearly as his child, and he has an eternal, unquenchable longing to have you with him, then you've just met Jesus, because that's who Jesus is. Jesus is God. He's one pent-up yearning to know you, to bring you to himself, for God so loved the world. He is daddy reaching out to you. So if you can imagine a God who is your dad, your father, who loves you more than you can know and wants you to know him, you're imagining Jesus. In fact, the night before Jesus was crucified and he prayed this great intercessory prayer for us in John chapter 16, I wanna, I wanna steal a phrase from his prayer because it encapsulates how he feels his desire towards each and every one of you. Jesus is praying in the garden, and instead of being focused on the horror that he's about to endure and go through, he's focused on us, his great purpose in coming and laying down his life. And he says, Father, I have given them the glory that you gave to me. So they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they experience such perfect unity, unity with me. Father, my unity with you and, and their unity with us. May they experience such perfect unity 
so that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given to me to be with me where I am. Now he's about to go to the right hand of the Father, right? I want them to be with me there. Then they can see all the glory that you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Well, how can we see all the glory that God has given us until we realize that he desires us and we let that desire take hold of us and ignite our desire in response back to him. God is a shadowy figure, a concept. He's an abstract. But the minute that you allow your life to be gripped by the desire of God and anybody sitting here under the sound of my voice that has experienced the desire of God for you, you know you didn't cook it up, you didn't make it up, that this is, you have fallen into the tractor beam of God's desire, pulling you towards himself. How many here can say, I have had that experience in my life? Praise the Lord. Well, when that experience happens to you, you are realizing and seeing the glory of God. That is what it takes to wake you up to see the things of heaven, the things of God, the things of his glory. So let me ask a practical question because <clears throat> I want to provide an answer, but until we, until we put the question up as a backdrop, the answer's not going to make a lot of difference. Here it is. It's a big if. If God has prepared a better place for us, a better place for you, and desiring it is how he gets you there, but your desire for him has become shallow and thin and divided and weak, how can you increase your desire for him? Uh, and if, if you're bound up in other things, so if you're bound up in other things, you have a de your desires are spread out. Remember David said in Psalm 27, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that also will I seek. I guarantee you David was a man that had many desires. We know that about David. But he had to, he had to sift through those desires and put many desires aside to be able to consolidate his heart into one desire. One desire that rose up became prominent. He said, that's what I'm going to seek after. But what happens when we know that God is looking for desire from us in order to navigate us into his blessing and into his purpose, but our desire is weak, it's shallow, it's flat. And you don't need to raise your hand, but every Christian that's been a Christian for any length of time knows what that feeling is like. We have fancy words for it. We call it the desert. We call it a cool down period. We call it a dry place. But all of those are just expressions for the fact that our desire has become shallow. And our desire, which is finite, has to share itself with a whole bunch of different things. God's just one of them. So if we know that it takes a focused desire for God to bring us into what he has for us, what do we do when our desire is divided? How can we increase a diminished desire? Are we doomed by our own emotions? If I cannot, if I cannot get my emotions uh, to release my desire so that it can flare up for Jesus, am I doomed? What do I do? Well, 
I'm glad I asked the question. Because there's good, no great news for us this morning. Do you know that God never expected you and I to produce the level of desire necessary to enter that better place on your own emotions without his help? God doesn't stand back with folded arms and say your desire has to hit critical mass. It, it cannot be weighted down with other things. You're going to have to get yourself detangled from all those desires. I have a better place for you, but you're going to have to fuel yourself with a complete, full deposit of desire in your heart. And you're crying out, am I doomed? What's wrong with me? I, 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 my desire has been cut in half. I'm running on half a tank. Now, if you want to raise your hand, you could say, you know, I have felt that before. I've been in that place. Thank you. We got an honest man there in the back. Praise the Lord. Philippians 2.13, I promised you great news that you don't have to rely solely on your own desire. God's willing to help you. Philippians 2.13, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God is at work in you, pumping up your desire, helping you, freeing it from all the hanger honors that are weighting you down. The secret to desiring God in a world that's constantly seeking to consume your desires and to divide your desires, that secret is that God is love. And that the love that never fails loves you. And the wonderful thing about love is love gives. There is no such thing as agape or the love of God that isn't radiating grace and mercy and help. So if you find yourself in that shallow place that I've been talking about, and you know that you need more desire to get up and pursue God like you once did perhaps, and, and you know you should, but you just can't seem to energize yourself to do it, good news for you this morning. God is radiating at you his desire for you. He desires for you to come into that place more than you will ever desire it for yourself. And the devil is always chipping away at that reality. He's always working against that reality, trying to discourage you that you're on your own, that you have to Get yourself half revived before God's going to take you seriously. But the secret of desiring God in this world that's constantly fighting us is that God loves you and he is reaching out towards you. One of our favorite verses in our household is Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18. Listen to this amazing statement by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of Isaiah. And therefore, the Lord earnestly waits, expecting, looking, and longing to be gracious to you. And therefore, he lifts himself up, that he might have mercy on you and show you loving kindness. For the Lord is a God of justice, blessed, happy, fortunate, to be envied, 
are all those who earnestly wait for Him, who expect and look and long for Him, for His victory, His favor, His love, His peace, His joy, His matchless, unbroken companionship. Blessed and fortunate. Why, why, if you and I long for the Lord, if we want that matchless, unbroken fellowship, but our desire is a little bit lame, it's in need of a front-end alignment. Have you ever had a vehicle that desperately needed a It just keeps pulling to the left. Have you ever noticed your life sometimes? It just always pulls in this one direction. It's wearing your tires out. You have to fight to drive the thing. And sometimes our desire is like that, and it needs a front-end alignment. So you've got this, this desire that keeps pulling you off the road. You know that God has a better place for you. But there's good news, and the Bible says you're fortunate if you desire God. Even though your own desire is too weak to get you there, you're fortunate. Why are you fortunate? Because the Lord is earnestly looking for you, expecting, longing to be gracious to you, and He is lifting Himself up to show mercy to you. We seek a proactive God. We don't seek an inert God. We don't seek an innate God. We don't seek a God who's ensconced like a gargoyle on the top of, of uh, some fancy building. We seek a God who is radiating with his emotion and desire towards you and I, working in us to desire him. That phrase is very important. He lifts himself up to show himself gracious to you. Because this scripture that I've plucked out of Isaiah 30 comes out of the middle of a great rebuke to Israel. They had been in one of their backsliding tears, running off into the world and, and adulterating themselves with other gods and everything. And God was just spanking the daylights out of them, just reproving them and... Um, he was explaining to them why they were under judgment. But in the middle of it, he reminds them, I yearn for you, I love you, and I lift myself up that I might be gracious to you. I want you to visualize in your mind, and you'll probably come up with a question. What does he mean, I lift myself up to be gracious to you? This is what I believe God is saying. He lifts himself up in the sense that he distinguishes himself above all that is common and unholy so that we may yet see a better country to be desired. You see, when we're down in the clutter and in the uh, confusion of everyday life, God does not submerge himself and all that unholy, sinful, common stuff. And he lifts himself up above it, and he lifts himself up above us. But he doesn't do it because he's withdrawing. He does it because he is drawing, not withdrawing. God lifts himself up so that we can see there is a better country. He lifts himself up so that we can see he's offering us a lifting up. He rises above those things. When, when you and your garments are covered with 
your involvement in the world and other things that your desires have led you into, I know the feeling of shame. I know the feeling that I've disappointed the Lord. And I know how the devil will ride upon those sentiments and just speak poisonous words into your mind, telling you, you're unholy, you're tainted. Look, you've got all the yuck all over you from the world. God doesn't want, look at him. He's holy and high and lifted up. But he has not withdrawn from you. He has elevated himself to the place that is your place. And he has lifted himself, separated, lifted himself up so that he may draw you, not withdraw from you. Let me share with you a couple of examples from the scriptures of God's great love, his great desire for us. Because once we get this thing started, you'll probably think of several of them on your own. One of my favorite is the Syrophoenician, the Greek woman that came to Jesus. She was not Jewish. She was not entitled to the covenant uh, under the Old Testament that Jesus was operating under as he was going through the, through the Gospels, through Galilee and through Judea, healing people. Yet she comes with, with this need that her daughter is terribly oppressed by a demon. And she knows there's this Jewish prophet, Jesus. Now the woman was a Greek, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by nationality, Mark chapter 7, verse 26, and on. And she kept begging Jesus to drive the demon out of her little daughter. And he said to her, first, let the children be fed. For it, it's not becoming, it's not appropriate or proper or right to take the children's bread, which is deliverance and healing, and throw it to the little house dogs. He just called her a little house dog, a little, little house puppy. But she answered him, and she said, yes, Lord, yes. Yet even the little pups under the table eat the little children's scraps of food. And Jesus said to her, because of this saying, you may go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter permanently. You need to understand that Jesus lifted himself up in that case with that woman. He lifted himself up above, but not away. He didn't jet away from her because she was unclean or unworthy. In fact, it was her desire that made her worthy. He lifted himself up to draw and sharpen her desire into something we call persistence. She wasn't going to be turned away. He had what she needed. And he refined and refocused her desire on him. It's not always a good thing to run around and give everybody everything they want. Children usually are not healthy that are just given everything they ask their parents for. Sometimes you never learn to stretch out, you never learn to grow until your dad backs up a little bit and asks you to go a little farther. I remember when my dad was trying to teach me, he's just a little duffer, how to swim. And... Uh, so there I am, clinging for dear life onto the side of the pool. And the, there's all the other children out there bobbing around. But there's me. I'm just sure I'm going to die in this pool. And my dad's out in the middle. 
Wisconsin. He backed out a little further. Come on, you can do it. You can come. And that, that tactic really helped because there was my dad. It wasn't just deep water that was going to drown and kill me. It was my dad. And so I kind of made my little awkward, little doggy swim out there, and I learned to swim that day. Praise the Lord. Even eventually went on and got the little like lifeguard thing and patches and all that stuff. Loved swimming. So Jesus lifts himself up above her to, to hone her desire into persistence because it wasn't the severity of her need but the persistence of the focus of her desire that brought the answer from God. Hallelujah. The Lord earnestly waits, expecting, longing, looking to be gracious to us. So he is there wanting to bless us. And that I love the story of that Syrophoenician woman who would not allow her desire to be disappointed, no matter how much it seemed she was insulted. The other one, <coughs> a little bit of a different outcome, but the rich young ruler. How many of you remember that story? In three of the Gospels, I'm going to take mine from Mark. It says, now as Jesus was starting on his way, he was going down to Jerusalem, someone ran up to him, fell on his knees and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There's none good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your mother and your father. And the man spoke up and he said, Lord, teacher, I have wholeheartedly obeyed all these laws since my youth. Now listen to the next. As Jesus looked at him, he felt love for him. Another gospel, another version says, when Jesus looked at him, he greatly loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell whatsoever you have. Give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But at this statement, the man looked sad and went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. Jesus loved the man, even though he could see that the man was captivated by his possessions, that his desire was not free he, he, uh, uh, to, to uh, focus on Jesus. He said, what do I do to get eternal life? The man was... His whole life was changed, was trained to gain. I want to gain in this life, and then I want to gain eternal life in the, in the life to come. So Lord, tell me how I could get rich in heaven once I, once I die. But the Bible says Jesus loved him. Jesus didn't have a critical thought towards him. Jesus didn't have a condemning attitude towards him. Jesus loved him. Do you see how utterly compassionate, how father-like, God is, that he sees through all of these idiosyncrasies. He knows the world has had an effect on us. He knows the impact that it's had upon our mind. He sees the various lusts and failures and, and issues that have grown in our life. He loves us just the same. And he called that he was ready 
to bring that man into his better place right then. But Jesus' love for him and his desire to have him join him as one of his disciples could not break the bonds of that man's desire for wealth. That man was torn in conflict. He felt the Lord's love and desire for him, but he would not act against his own desires to follow Jesus. There are so many captives like him in the world today. They feel the pull of God's love. They know God loves them, but they cannot say no to their own desires. They won't act against their own desires. Sometimes when your desire is bruised, when it's diminished, it takes an act of authority on your part and my part that we have to act in authority and say, you're not going to be the boss of me today. Let me go to um, my last example of uh, God's desire for us. This is my favorite one. It's about John the Beloved, John the Disciple. John the Disciple whom Jesus loved. There's a scripture in John, it's one of five actually, and, and it says in chapter 19, Jesus is hanging on the cross in this incident. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother standing by, uh, and, and it says he saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he said to his mother, Mother, woman, behold your son. Now five times in the Gospels, John was referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The amazing thing is, he's the one who called himself that. Nobody else in the Gospels called John the disciple whom Jesus loved. Probably he was a little irritating and annoying. Maybe, maybe a little like Joseph, you know, with a multicolored coat, you know, with his brothers. I don't know, I, I couldn't really build a case for it, but I do know this. None of them said, oh, here's John, the disciple whom Jesus loves. The only one who knew how much Jesus loved John was John. And what is amazing to me, he was not the least bit ashamed or hesitant to broadcast it. He even wrote it in his gospel five times. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. It permeated him. It literally was the anchor for his consciousness. It was the anchor for his faith in God. I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. I believe everything sprang from that. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you know what? I think from, for Jesus' part, just uh, he, so he just wants you to know that his love and desire for you doesn't need anyone else's vote of approval. If all the other disciples thought he was a pain in the neck, not worth loving, didn't matter. John didn't let it bother him, and Jesus didn't let it bother him. Jesus loves you even when he knows common sense says you don't deserve that love. Even when your own mother doesn't love you. Even when your own friends are sick and tired of you. He loves you. He loves you and he has a great desire for you. What did Jesus pray? Oh, that the world may know that you love them just as you loved me. I hope that you're, I hope that you're beginning to formulate 
in your mind today, wow, maybe, maybe what this preacher is saying this morning, maybe I should really consider this. Do I really believe? Am I convinced? Am I sold on? Do I have a grip on the fact that there's a reaching down hand, not just a reaching up hand, that God loves me, that he truly wants me? Hallelujah. And I'll close with a couple of verses that, not just stories on the Bible, a couple of verses that just express from God's perspective his love and desire for you. We're familiar with them. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and fellowship and eat with him and he with me. That's, des that's God's desire for you. Hallelujah. Zephaniah 3.17 is one of my favorite. The Lord your God in the midst is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. We think God wants us to sing. God wants us to lift our voice. Did you know he's dancing around and he's shouting and singing more than we are? He's exalting over us in his love. God is one eternal, bottomless, I don't want to use the word pit, but a bottomless supply, an endless eternal supply of desire and love for us. One of the most difficult verses in the Bible, theologians all agree, certainly in the New Testament, is James chapter 4 and verse 5. But most agree that this is a solid interpretation. Here it is, James 4, 5. The Spirit, whom God has caused to dwell in us, yearns over us, and he yearns for the Spirit to be welcome with a jealous love. The Spirit that God has caused to dwell in us, the Holy Spirit, God yearns with a jealous love for us, yearns for us to love his presence, to love his Spirit. And he's not sitting with folded arms saying, love me back. Show yourself worthy of my love. What he's doing, he's filling us, igniting our hearts with his love for us, and that prompts our love for him. You didn't fall in love with your mama because you needed to get to know her. If you had a nice mom that you really loved, you loved your mom because she first loved you. You learn to love her. Why? Because she just showered you with love. Now, with some of you, maybe mom's not a good example. You might have to think of another. But you basically get the idea that the Lord has an, a yearning for you and I. This is what we should do. This is what we're going to do in a moment. We should pray constantly, every day, constantly, for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit fuels our desire for God. That's exactly what James is saying. The Spirit whom He has caused to dwell in us yearns over us. God is working in us to will and to do His good pleasure. So we should be praying every day, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Fill me with the anointing. Don't let yourself get dry. When you're in a jam, when you're in a problem, and you say, man, I need $1,000 right now, just pray, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. I don't know how getting filled with the Holy Spirit is going to bring a thousand bucks. 
uh, that I need right now. Let me tell you, the Holy Spirit filling your life is what revives your desire for God. And when you delight yourself in the Lord, He grants you the desires of your heart. Is that not right? Praise the Lord. So ask Jesus to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire that His burning love and desire for you will ignite your desire for God. Pretty simple message, but there it is. I've laid it out. I'd like you to close your Bible and stand with me.